The U.S. has the highest drug prices around, prices that threaten household as well as governmental budgets. Who sets those prices? What is their basis? You're listening to Clinical Conversations from the NEJM Group. I'm Joe Elia, and I'm here with the authors of a book that came out last year titled The Right Price, a value-based prescription for drug costs. The authors are Drs. Peter Newman, Joshua Cohen, and Daniel Ohlendorf, all of the Center for the Evaluation of Value and Risk of, in Health at Tufts Medical Center. Welcome. Well, we could quickly drown in numbers here. Uh, so let's get some out of the way immediately. Uh, one is that US prescriptions uh, uh, pricing amounts to some $500 billion a year. And the other uh, that I'd like to cite is that per capita spending on those drugs, on those prescription drugs, is at least twice that in the United Kingdom. So there are more numbers, but let's get around to your book. As the book's uh, first author, Dr. N Newman, you'll get the first question, but uh, anyone's allowed to answer at any, at any point. So why did you write The Right Price and what has the reaction to it been? Well, thanks, Joe, uh, for having us, first of all. Um, we wrote this book because the conversation around drug prices is very important, but it tends to focus on uh, the level of prices, not on the value that the drug is delivered. And we thought it very important to try to orient the debate around drug value and not drug prices. Everyone wants lower drug prices, of course, we do too. But the really critical question is what value uh, the drugs are delivering and how do we think about that? And what's an acceptable price given the value? And so far the reaction to the book, I think has been quite positive. Uh, we've spoken to many audiences and uh, had a lot of positive feedback from people. And I think, and we hope that is contributing in a constructive way. Um, people who read medical literature often come across the acronym QALY, Q-A-L-Y. Um, can somebody explain that in 10 seconds or less? Peter? Like, maybe, maybe I'll take a, a shot at it. Um, so a QALY is just a life year, but we scale it to also account for health. Um, so are you in pain? Are you functional? And so on. If a, a one corresponds to the hypothetical state of being in perfect health, zero is the equivalent of being dead and the rest of us are in between. Closer to one is better. Thanks, Josh. That was close to 10 seconds. So uh, so somebody who's, uh, who's not feeling well a lot uh, would probably score only uh, maybe a, a, a 0.6 uh, of, out of one or 60% of, 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 of 100. And so you would say that, that a year in that person's life would represent 0.6 qualies. Yeah, I mean, actually 0.6 would be really uh, someone in quite a bit of uh, discomfort or uh, you know loss of function, but yes, that's that's the idea. Someone who's you know in very poor condition would would have a number like that. Okay, so uh, one organization, uh, the Institute for uh, Clinical and Economic Review, or uh, as I think of it as ICER, 
I-C-E-R, gets a lot of mention, and, and we should mention as well that Dr. Ollendorf worked there for about a decade, I think. Um, what is ICER and uh, what does it do? So ICER in uh, the parlance of the day is known as a health technology assessment organization. So uh, it does its work uh, along the same lines that many other agencies and organizations internationally, such as NICE in England or the Canadian Agency for Drugs and Technologies and Health or CADETH in Canada do. Essentially, it's an organization that is focused on understanding the clinical evidence on new and emerging technologies. So to Josh's point, what kind of benefit, or to Peter's point, what kind of benefit uh, the new treatments might bring, and also to understanding questions about the cost effectiveness and the impact on the budget that these new technologies might bring as well. So really using state-of-the-art scientific techniques to understand the value equation that we talk about in the book. What kinds of clinical benefits are being brought by the drug? How is that balanced out against the possible harms that the drug or technology might be causing? And what are the, what's the price? And does that price align using the quality as, uh, as a measure of benefit? Does that price align with the value that the drug or technology is bringing? Now, it's not a government organization, is it? It is not. So it, the US is a bit of an outlier in comparison to other developed nations because we have no formal step to do this work. So ICER does this as a private organization and so is limited only to making recommendations to patients, clinicians, payers, and others about what a price, a valuable, a value-based price might look like and uh, what the evidence is saying about a new treatment. And the, as you said, the UK has got this uh, organization called NICE. Um, but we don't have one in the United States. And uh, as I read your book, and as I've, uh, I've been reading through my, through my life about, about these, uh, the politics of medicine, I have a sense that the lobbying of certain, uh, of the drug companies, of, of medical um, uh, organizations, et cetera, have a lot to do with the fact that the, uh, um, ICER, can't uh, it can't be a governmental agency because they've been lobbied out of the government. Is, is yeah, is well, it's, it's it's a bit of an interesting history. So, in fact, one of the ironies here is that organizations like Nice are using methods that were in fact uh, pioneered here in the U.S. So, we used to have government entities who did this work: the Office for Technology Assessment, the National Center for Health Technology. Uh, these were not formal agencies in quite the same way. They were more congressional advisory services, but they provided a lot of this information and information on health technology uh, to decision makers and policymakers. Uh, I think those early efforts were uh, scuttled in part due to lobbying, not necessarily from the pharmaceutical industry. In fact, the medical profession was quite concerned at the time about uh, this kind of work being done uh, outside of the profession itself. But recently it has been the case that uh, lobbying from patient advocacy groups and from the pharmaceutical industry has prevented any sort of formal step like a NICE to be taken here. And I, okay. I would add, uh, Joe, 
the politics of this are quite uh, tricky. There's ideological opposition to the federal government playing too strong a role in many areas, including health technology assessment. And the rhetoric you often hear is that, at least from some places, uh, we don't want uh, the federal government to get between doctors and patients and their ability to make their own decisions. So in addition to the lobbying, which you suggest and, and is real, I think uh, we shouldn't uh, underestimate that just ideological opposition. It's, um, as, as I read your book, I realized um, how complicated, I, I, I was tell, telling myself things like, well, it's not, um, it's not brain surgery, it's worse. <laughs> because trying to trying to figure this out and, and increasingly um, uh, I'm, these days I'm reminded uh, what uh, Rudolf Virchow, the, the founder of cellular pathology, said about medicine. And he said this in the 19th century. He said that medicine is a social science. And, and, and it seems to me that drug pricing is a kind of a proof of that, that, that every piece of, of society has a stake in this, and um, because it's a democracy, <laughs> it, it it becomes less tidy than it otherwise might be. Um, you know, you hear things about uh, well, uh, you know, the the price is what the market will bear, and uh, the, the realization is that the pharmaceutical, uh, the drug companies sell stock, and so they're interested in having good value uh, in, in their stock. But there's a trade-off between the interests of, the, of, of, of society and the medical and the pharmaceutical industry. Um, is, is it, are, we, are we looking at a situation that's going to continue to evolve and we'll never, we'll never solve this equation? It's, it's not like algebra. There's no that there's no x equals something at the at the end of the day. Could you comment on that? Well, we emphasize in the book how complicated the uh, market for prescription drugs uh, is, and in many ways, it's it's just a reflection of how complicated the healthcare system in the United States is, with so many different players. We talk about uh, all kinds of uh, issues on what economists would say of the demand side of the market. We have insurance. We have third-party payers. We have this phenomenon that the patient takes a drug and benefits, other people benefit with the economist's language externalities. On the supply side, we have patents, we have regulation, we have many, many players in between the drug companies and the ultimate consumer, the patient, and on and on. These complexities, to some extent, of course, will always exist, but we argue in the book that we can at least help things along by providing better information to the marketplace on the value of prescription drugs by, by measuring uh, value and, and disseminating that information. And we, we argue that this is something that individuals and even individual payers can't do very well by themselves. It really, in our view, takes an organization like ICER or perhaps in the future, some government organization to help things along. Yes. Um, I might, so uh, there are... Oh, sorry. Good, no, go, go, go ahead, Daniel. I might add in that, uh, so we know that the Build Back Better Act, which did have some discussion of, of drug price reform in it, is sitting dormant in Congress. But I think 
what gives us some hope that something may be done to better integrate uh, value into this conversation is that there still is a lot of interest in doing something, whether that is a, a, a slimmed down version of Build Back Better or whether there is something that, that CMS uh, will do uh, on its own is an open question, but I think that there is still some energy and, and some enthusiasm. What we don't know from the discussions is what sort of approach to drug price reform will be taken. Will it be some kind of across the board price controls or will it be a value-based approach? And we obviously argue for the latter. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's important to, to emphasize something. I, you know, Peter was talking about this, but you know, at some level it's like, wait, wait a minute, why, why are drugs so complicated? You know, it seems like they're different from all the other products that, that we we buy, you know, from the trivial, we mentioned toothpaste in our, uh, in our book. We don't, we don't have a toothpaste technology assessment agency, you know, looking at the, at what the price of toothpaste should be, or, or even more important, you know, less trivial products like cars and houses and, and things like that. So, you know, what is it about drugs? And what Peter said gets at that, which is on the demand side, you know, consumers are not patients they're not really in a position to choose drugs in the same way that they choose their toothpaste, right? They, there have to be a lot of other parties involved. They're, they're clinicians primarily. And on the supply side, um, we can't just have the sort of normal competition where, you know, different companies um, uh, compete and bring the, the cost down to the, to the uh, or the price down to the cost of, of marginal cost of production. And that's because you have to have patent protection on these products because they're so easy to copy. And so that means that we can't have the normal, you know, individual uh, producers and consumers just interacting with Adam Smith's invisible hand and everything works out great. Instead, we have to collectively figure out what the price should be. And that gets to what you said earlier, which is this becomes a social enterprise. And that's what we're talking about. Yes, we, in the United States, we've offered a monopoly to the to the drug companies, uh, the limited monopoly for 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 some time. And the argument that that's adduced uh, and that you that you bring forward in your, in your book as well is that well, without this monopoly, the drug companies have got no incentive to innovate, which I found. Okay, so what would those companies do uh, if they didn't have that incentive? Would they go out and make lawnmowers or, you know, to Well, I mean, I, I think what would happen is that those companies, the capital that is behind them, it's not so much that like the companies would decide something, but the capital would move elsewhere. And, right. you know, the people with those skills would move to do something else. And so we would not have, I mean, you know, if, if a lot of these medications sold at their cost, their marginal cost of production, they could be pennies a pill. And you just would never get the kind of resources you need to attract all the people you need and the, the risk that's involved, the many years. Um, you know, there's so many drugs that are investigated, molecules that are investigated that then go nowhere, uh, that you know, you just would not get anywhere near the kind of innovation that we get. And Josh's point raises just a, 
a question that gets back to the title of our book, The Right Price, that you know, we worry a lot about too high prices, uh, understandably, but there also is a problem if we have too low prices. And so the right price, again, is the value-based price, the price that we hope um, delivers the value to the consumer, but also provides the right incentives to the producers to innovate and to innovate for the next products. So to there be was clear, a... the, the right price can be very high. So if you have a gene therapy that cures a universally fatal disease that occurs in childhood, you're allowing that child to live something close to a complete life, that therapy can be very expensive. A million dollars, $2 million might not be too high. Right, and so it, it, there are ways of determining <clears throat> what a, a price might be. Uh, and you talk a, a lot about those in, in the book, and this is where we start swimming in the big pool of numbers, um, if, if, if you're so inclined. Um, uh, I, I'm not so inclined, <clears throat> but if, 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 there is, if there is an example that you would like to, to, to bring forward about, about this, I'd be, I'd be happy to hear it. Is, is, there, a, is, there, an, is there an approach that, that, uh, that you that you used to illustrate this? I, I don't know. I mean, let, let, let me take a shot at it. You know, and, and this, we, we, we tell the story of how, uh, in the book, of how these methods came about. And they came about, you know, not because someone sat down one day and said, hmm, you know, we should do health economics and let's start writing down the, the theorems that underlie uh, that, that science. Instead, they were trying to solve, you know, pretty straightforward problems of the day. Um, and those involved like, you know, hey, um, if we can save some lives, what's that worth? And so at first people were like, well, what's a life worth? And then um, that the, the limitations of asking that question became apparent because it was like, well, are you talking about saving the life of someone who's 85 or someone who's much younger? And what about the quality of life? It's not just about extending life, it's about quality of life. Um, and then it's like, all right, well, how are we going to estimate things like, you know, an extra year of life or an improved, an improvement in, um, you know, freedom from pain? These are not things you, that you can estimate by going to the marketplace and seeing what price people place on these things because they're not bought and sold explicitly. But economists came up with different ways of imputing these values by looking at decisions people make, for example, uh, you know, uh, trade-offs um, between, you know, large cars and small cars. Now, there are a lot of differences that, you know, a lot of reasons why people buy large cars versus small cars, but one of them is implicitly that the large car has more safety. So they are implicitly buying health there. So that's one approach. Or you can actually ask people, you can, you know, hypothetical, you know, if there were a pill that could extend your life by this much, you know, what would it be worth to you? So there are different ways of doing it. They all have limitations, but that's the basic thumbnail sketch of how the science of estimating the value of health evolved. Well, um, you end your book with some recommendations and we, we, you gave a nice definition of the quality early on. And uh, I, I think the, the book says, let's stick with it because it's 
if nothing else, a, a standard measure. Uh, e even though sometimes people say, well, it's not that standard, but it's the closest one we've got to a standard. Is that right? Yeah, I think, and we say this in the book, that the quality is imperfect. It has its own challenges and problems, but it is useful uh, as a kind of benchmark for, for value. And it's a starting point, as we say in the book, the cost per quality ratio as a measure of value is a starting point, And we think a good one for this conversation about value. Other things may certainly enter the equation. And it's important to realize that all health technology assessment organizations, ICER included, think of the cost per quality equation, the value equation as an input into decision or recommendation making, not the sole driver. So you need to look at the clinical evidence. You need to understand how severe the condition is and what the level of unmet need is uh, in that condition. What's the public health burden associated with it? Uh, so there are lots of other deliberative and ethical aspects that go into that conversation. And one of your recommendations, and, and you are uh, all fans of ICER uh, or, or something that would evolve from ICER, um, you say uh, that ICER should be more transparent in its analyses. So in other words, they should be giving people the wherewithal to reproduce the calculations that they make. Yeah, right. I, yes. Um... You know, so it, it's, of course, these issues are extremely controversial. And the only way that we can, I think, that we can really make progress uh, towards some sort of consensus on, you know, what, what the, the price of, of a particular therapy should be is if at least we can agree on the analysis, the facts, so to speak. And the best way to do that is to lay bare what, you know, what we're doing. So when ICER or another H health technology assessment organization does their analysis, the best way that they can convey what they've done is to say, look, here's our, our model. Here's our computer code. You can look at it. You can change it and see how different assumptions affect the answer, then at least we can argue about what the right assumption should be rather than, you know, just kind of not being able to reach any consensus because I can't really tell what you're doing and, you know, we're stuck. Yeah. But we also argue that everyone in the ecosystem needs to do this. So a lot of these analyses are sponsored by pharmaceutical companies. They need to be open with their models too. Yeah. Um, it's a good book, I, I have to say. Um, um, this is not a book review, but uh, I, I learned a lot um, the, the reading it. And, and I think that uh, anyone who's going to be a, a student of drug prices or, or, or clinicians who are taking a, a course in it would benefit for, for, from your book. And I, and I want to congratulate you. Um, is there a question that I have not asked that you wish I had? You know, I, I think one thing that would be helpful is just even a simple explanation of what is a cost effectiveness ratio, because it, I think especially you said that that young clinicians are your audience. And so, you know, cost effectiveness ratio sounds really technical, but what a cost effectiveness ratio is, is it's the incremental cost 
per unit of benefit. And even that sounds complicated, but it's really just a price. So, you know, if I go out and buy a gallon of milk, you know, $4 per gallon of milk, that's the cost per unit of good thing, the milk, that is better than $5 per gallon of milk. So we want low ratios, that's good. And higher ratios are not as favorable. And to determine whether something, whether we're paying too much for something, we look at the ratio and we say, hey, you know, if we're paying $50,000 for a quality adjusted life year for this medication, if that's what it's giving us, is that a good price or does the price need to be lowered so that the cost effectiveness ratio is lower, that is more favorable? The other point we didn't get to, and I think it's important for your audience is, even if we get to value-based prices, there's still this affordability issue for many people yeah. that will remain. In other words, the value-based price, as Dan said, could be quite high. Uh, it could be a million, two million dollars for gene therapy. There's a separate uh, problem of out-of-pocket costs rising for many, many patients. And that needs to be dealt with as well through insurance reforms. And there's legislation that's being discussed to do things like that. Okay. And that, that's something that is at, towards the end of our book, might even be in chapter 11, I can't remember, but that's, yeah. I mean, you know, so, so the, the, the way to fix accessibility is not to say, well, let's, you know, make the price really low because then you run into an innovation problem. You want to have the right price, but then as a society, we need to figure out how can everyone get access to the therapies at that right price? And that's insurance reform. Okay. I, I want to thank you, uh, the, uh, the Dr. Newman, Dr. Cohen, and Dr. Ollendorf for, for your time uh, with, with me today. And uh, I, want, I want to mention once again that your book, the right price is available uh, for a right price, I hope, um, from the Oxford University Press. Uh, that was our 281st clinical conversation. We come to you from the NEJM group and the writers and editors of NEJM Journal Watch. Kristen Kelly is our executive producer. And I'm Joe Elia. Thank you for listening. <laughs>